Welcome to 2038, the podcast where we interrogate predictions about the future. In two decades, American politics will be 19th century politics, and all the news will be fake. This is Tyler Cowen. My prediction is that American politics will return to its original roots in the 19th century, when there was lots of fake news, partisanship was extreme, media were very biased, Americans reacted politically with extreme emotions, and all debates seem to be full of rancor and bitterness. So this country, in some fundamental ways, has not changed. We had a break from that earlier state of affairs in part of the 20th century because we had the major enemies of the Nazis and then the Soviets. But as those enemies dwindle, in essence, we're fighting amongst ourselves more. And this nation will go back to an earlier version of its politics, which were highly dysfunctional. You had plenty of people becoming president who probably should not have been. And yet, at the same time, we muddled through that era and emerged as modern America. And I think what we're seeing over the next 20, 30 years is America becoming like that again. And in a way, it shouldn't be surprising. The surprise is that so many of us are surprised. This is Tyler Cowen. I'm professor of economics at George Mason University. I'm David Wallace-Wells. I'm an editor at New York Magazine, and as someone who grew up in the 20th century, I'm terrified of reverting to the age of the Civil War. And I'm Max Reed, and I'm not going to fare very well in the 21st century. Um, I mean, it seems to me that one, you know, if we're talking about 19th century politics, there's one, um, there's one event that sticks out, and especially if we're talking about highly partisan, highly emotionally charged politics, I mean, are we headed for a civil war? Are we headed for some kind of mass um, armed conflict between Americans? Although partisanship will go up and debates will continue to become more and more emotional, I don't see any evidence that we're headed toward anything like a civil war. The splits are not mainly defined by states or north versus south. Today is a more peaceful era. Police tactics have much improved. Even the riots of the 1960s are very, very far away. So I think uh, a lot of the fighting will stay on social media. You know, the 19th century played out in America against a backdrop of, you know, uh, conquering the frontier, industrialization, and in particular, um, you know, because we had so many natural resources here, the country was able to um, do relatively well economically. I know, you you know, you've written in the past quite a bit about um, the, you know, the low-hanging fruit of economic growth and whether we've harvested all of that already. How how does a 19th century politics play out against a 21st century great stagnation? Well, keep in mind, America's rates of high economic growth are mostly from the early and mid part of the 20th century, not the 19th century. A lot of the 19th century, America grew one and a half percent, two percent, which was okay. It got us to where we are, but it was not like four or five percent growth. So people then felt resources were very scarce. Everything was argued over. A small amount of, say, tariff revenue was a big deal. And I think that, too, will be like our immediate future, where there's a lot of scarcity. Our budgets are stretched tightly. And again, everything will be an emotional debate. And precisely because there's so much gridlock, we will look to symbolic politics, who deserves higher status, what kind of rhetoric is permissible in public debate. We'll look to that more and more. 
Um, you mentioned uh, the sort of the ways in which having Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia as foils to uh, sort of unify and cohere an American identity and an American project, how important that was in the 20th century. Is there, I mean, uh, the sort of the elephant in the room is China. Is is a rising China enough to sort of give Americans um, that same kind of sense of a national project or identity? Or is that rivalry not strong enough? I suspect the rivalry with China is not visible enough to give Americans a new cohesive sense of identity. Uh, whatever one thinks of China, no one feels it's going to conquer the United States. It's not, it does not pretend to have a universal system such as Marxism that will take over the whole world. Uh, China is for the Chinese. China wants to be the dominant power in Asia. That's highly troublesome. But unless there's a major war, which seems unlikely, I just don't see Americans getting so emotionally worked up over China the way they did with the Soviet Union. So we've said that you, you don't believe there's going to be any kind of civil war or sort of open armed uh, internal conflict. It sounds like you don't think there's going to be a major power conflict. I mean, are we still looking at these extended, um, I don't know what to call them, sojourns in places like Iraq and Afghanistan? Um, what What does the state of war look like under this regime? Well, what we're seeing is America substituting much more into drone warfare, which leads to very few American casualties. It's not clear how effective it is, but of course we didn't do a good job with the second Iraq war or with Afghanistan. The American public is not hungry for more. Budgets are stretched ever tighter. It's just harder to beat other nations. What I think we'll see is a lot of regional conflicts in places such as the Middle East or nearby, and America having some role, maybe through proxy wars, but not being very directly involved, and it will be ugly and messy, like Syria, and maybe not always end well. Uh, but to think, you know, is America going to send a lot of troops into Syria? Uh, it was highly unlikely. It seems highly unlikely now. And getting back to domestic politics for a second, um, you know, the the sort of rancorous um, picture that you paint seems very easy to imagine at a kind of um, t- view from 10,000 feet perspective. Um, do you see that divide playing out um, geographically as well? I mean, are there going to be parts of the um, the U.S. that are sort of defined as effectively permanently, let's say, blue America and parts of the U.S. that are defined effectively as red America and that will have um, regional rivalries? Or do you see there being some contestation in which um, the political disputes um, unfold at, at a more local level? Well, right now, as you know, it's the coastal elites in major cities versus many other parts of the country. But I think that will be in flux. So questions such as, you know, what were formerly Latino immigrants, at what rate will they vote Democratic? Will Asian Americans defect to the Republican Party in greater numbers? Uh, Those are hard to predict, but I don't see the current coalitions as fully permanent. There's always competition at the margins, and the views of the coastal elites, uh, they have failed electorally in some ways. And I think they will be moderated. And in the last election cycle, you saw that, you know, the far left candidates mostly losing. Over the next few decades, are we going to see the same kind of, you know, breakaway uh, white nationalist Christian identity terror groups? I mean, that seems like one possible after effect of a highly charged politics that doesn't um, break into sort of, you know, a civil war. Well, I think it's more about lone wolves than organized terror groups. There's so much surveillance today, and police tactics are so advanced. I don't think we'll have anything like, say, a domestic version of al-Qaeda. But there's a lot of guns in this country. So many people feel aggrieved. 
And I think that what we're seeing with these shootings, it is actually, I'm sorry to say, likely to continue. And do you think that at a sort of um, psychological level, this will result in um, a general loss of faith in government and therefore the ability of the country to move um, effectively into the future? Or do you think that America will continue to have a kind of naive idea about its own, um, you know, eternal superpower reign? Well, Congress often has approval ratings at 10%. Uh, they can't actually fall that much lower. So I think the naive notion of America being so perfect is already gone. Our government is quite weak. It cannot just say, well, trust us, this will work out. Our government did that with TARP, actually, after the stock market crashed. But that was the last time we saw that happening. And I feel that's a major loss of something major needed to be done. Uh, quite possibly there would not be enough bipartisan trust to have it happen effectively. So play that out. It's, let's say we have another financial crisis like that, like that, the one that happened in 2008. And for instance, let's, let's posit that the federal government was unable to come to a kind of um, consensus on some economic stabilization plan. How would that shake out? What would the implications of that be? And how long would it take for the country to recover? Well, you would have had, in that case, a much steeper recession uh, a lot of bank failures, higher rates of unemployment, probably a bigger backlash against the whole Great Recession. That, to me, is one of the great worrisome scenarios. There's another crisis of some kind, whatever it may be. And uh, I still think, more likely than not, we'll have an okay bipartisan response. I just think the chance of that is much lower than it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago. And it may take um, a little longer to kick in. You know, the, the effects may have to become much more starkly visible, I guess, before people start coming to the negotiating table. Yes, and we'll get a stupider version of the fix. You see this now with Brexit, which has just been a complete mess and catastrophe. Whatever you think of Brexit, they can't agree on how to do it. And now there's the risk of like a hard crash and a hard Brexit. And it's because British politics is dysfunctional. And our politics shares some of the common features of that. Well, that does raise the question of how, to what extent you're talking about an American phenomenon and to what extent you're talking about a Western phenomenon, to what extent you're talking about a global phenomenon, that, um, this sort of retreat from technocratic politics. How do, you, how, do you see, um, how do you see it playing out across the globe and what do you see as the particularly American features of um, this scenario? I think it's fairly global. So, for instance, Bolsonaro just won in Brazil. He's a, a Trump-like figure in many ways with elements of Duterte from the Philippines. You see it in Eastern Europe. You see it with Brexit. Even in autocratic countries such as China, you see the autocrats making moves. You know, they wouldn't have dared 10 years ago the Saudis killing Khashoggi. It's another example of politics feeling it can get away with something that it couldn't have done before. I don't think we understand why it's global. To me, the striking feature of America is that I think here it's actually going better than in most other places, and that's because our Constitution was uh, very well designed. Yeah, and we're sort of unable to do all that much. So the, the politicians who we elect are in a sort of stalemate, and in certain, in certain instances I guess that can be an advantage. And now with a Democratic House of Representatives coming in, Donald Trump will be all the more constrained and if you think the American Constitution was, in a way, written as a response to George III, who was a crazy king, right? So if you get an unusual leader, I guess that's the right word, yeah. uh, our Constitution was designed exactly for someone like Trump. And that's not true in most of these other countries. 
you you talked about the sort of the low trust uh, Americans already have in Congress and in the institutions. What are the institutions that Americans trust? You know, is there some? Is are there other? It's Amazon, isn't that like I mean, the top of the list? <laughs> that's right. That's what's in the back of my head. Amazon, Facebook, Google. I mean, the, actually, Facebook shouldn't be in that. You know, in that category, but no longer, yes. right. But like, the are we going to look at a situation where we turn to big tech companies for to to be the institutions we trust and believe in? If you look at polls, you see a generalized loss of trust in many institutions. But the number one clear winner by far is still the military. People still trust the military. So you think that, I mean, that's not, you know, if you're a sort of a small D Democrat uh, or a small R Republican, that's not necessarily the institution you want Americans to have the most trust in. But I think it's a fact of life. And since we're not using them that much in a direct way right now, they're not taking a lot of casualties, they'll probably keep that trust. And the failures of, say, Afghanistan are blamed on politicians rather than the military, which is probably correct, in fact. And this idea progressives had that somehow American politics will just eventually shift to the left and will evolve into social democracy, I think it's very much not been that. And the world as a whole has shifted into caring about migration and security and terrorism issues much more. And the world as a whole is shifting to, like, some bad version of right-wing concerns. So if, if you think about um, how that might play out, this sort of um, enduring faith in the military, uh, against a backdrop of collapsing faith in other institutions, including the two political parties. Can you imagine a scenario in which the military becomes a sort of um, center point of domestic politics, perhaps even um, a third party emerging around it, or one of the two parties um, identifying much more strongly, not just with um, the military in the sense of projecting American power abroad, but... um, sort of building into American life something much more militaristic? And if so, isn't that a kind of technocratic dream um, rather than a... Um, I mean, isn't, isn't it a case that the military re- retains that um, admiration among Americans, a reflection of some enduring faith in nonpartisan um, can-doism? I just don't see it happening that the military becomes central to American politics. It's never been the case in our past. Mm-hmm. Even when Eisenhower was president, he in no way governed as a general. And I think people, maybe they love the military, but they love it at a distance. Mm-hmm. And the worse other institutions look, the more we'll like, send love and affection toward the military. Uh, but it'll be this, the kind of thing we don't want to look at too closely because we don't want to be disillusioned. So I think... Uh, the notion that parties are central to American politics and not the military. Well, parties will get weaker, but what will get stronger is individual candidates and overall government will be weaker. Uh, you said before that, um, you know, this there's a sort of liberal assumption that uh, American politics would move towards social democracy and, and that, that seems to be contradicted right now. I'm wondering what, what you think the global factors and also national factors are um, that are pushing us sort of into a, into a reactionary mode. I think when migration and terror and security are the focal issues in people's minds, people become more right-wing, not in a a libertarian way, but in a kind of older school, almost authoritarian way. And those have been the major issues on the world stage and the major contributions of the social democrats, welfare states. We already have them. People mostly support them, but they don't see at the margin what, say, social democrats have to offer. America now has Obamacare, and those other issues loom large. So I think global politics will be continuing to shift to the right. 
In that particular, um, on that particular question, isn't it more a matter of status quo bias? I mean, Americans were, um, for a while, reluctant to embrace Obamacare, which has become more popular, presumably even at a great expense if there was some, you know, Medicare for All program instituted that would also, over time, um, accumulate more support than it might have at the outset. It seems to me that there's a... Um, Americans tend to like the social welfare programs they have and be skeptical of the ones that are proposed, but that doesn't mean that if the ones that are proposed um, become real, that they'll still dislike them or unbuilt, you know, attack them. I agree with that, but I think the Democrats still have a big problem. Like, what are they going to run on? So they could run on more preschool or, paid, you know, more paid maternity leave. And whatever you think of those ideas, I mean, they could well happen. They could even happen under a future Republican administration. They're just not that big a deal. They're not major changes in how America works. And I don't think they'll end up as the main things we're debating. But you look at all the attention the caravan got, which was, what, just a few thousand people. I think that's our future. So this seems to be sort of a, uh, a media issue. Um, you know, do you think that the, the rise of social media is contributing to the focus on these kind of um, visceral issues, issues of safety, issues of belonging, nationhood, that kind of thing? I don't know. It seems to me more like cable television. So the most polarized group are the elderly, and they use social media the least, and they watch cable TV the most. So I know it's fashionable to blame social media, and that may play a role, but I don't yet see the clear evidence that that's what's driving this. Are we looking at a world where everybody is just kind of constantly on edge about politics? Well, I wouldn't say everyone. The happy people will be those who turn off their smartphones or who don't put Twitter on them and who just go about living their lives. And that is, in fact, most Americans, either now or in the future. But I think the intellectual classes, people in media, uh, they'll become less and less happy. They'll be more stressed. And every day they'll feel like they're being put through the ringer. And again, this is not the distant future. I think this is America right now. Do you think it means that some people in those classes are going to turn themselves off of electoral politics that are going to turn away from it because of that? Uh, they seem to get more and more interested. It's like an addiction. So I find it striking that, say, the reading of fiction has fallen about 50 percent since Trump was elected. You know, what fiction can compete with what we see happening in the White House so I don't see that changing anytime soon. Right. Maybe one knock-on effect of the next 20 years of politics is just there's less and less novels being written and read. Uh, that's already the case. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, one you, you brought up social media, and I'm wondering what relationship you think it has to this kind of obsessive or almost addictive relationship some Americans have developed with a politics that they don't need to have. Social media has become a kind of opiate of the intellectual class. So grandparents use social media to track what their grandkids are doing. That's nice and wonderful. But people who keep on refreshing their Twitter feed for, you know, the latest development from the Mueller investigations, uh, frankly, I think it's a big waste of time. I think there's been great wrongdoing. I fully support what Mueller is up to. Uh, but at the end of the day, fo following it, you know, each moment is a kind of trap we've built ourselves into. It's not making really anyone much better off. Um is there something that we should be paying attention to instead? I mean, is there something that, you know, as as members of the media class or intellectual or academic class, something that we should be attending to with that same kind of intensity? Well, there's some evidence that there are rising rates of depression in American society and growing loneliness. This is certainly covered by the media, but not with the intensity or the focus it deserves. 
opioid deaths, again, that's hardly a secret at this point, but I still think the general issue of addictive drugs should command much more attention. So there are lots of big problems, and some of them are getting worse. And uh, they should take up more space in the headlines than, say, the Trump administration. Another would just be simple air pollution, which is still a fact of life in some parts of this country. It still kills people. You hear about carbon emissions. That's certainly a big problem, but just regular old air pollution. Lots of issues we should be paying more attention to. Um, so, you know, it seems possible that there's a, that, you know, in 2038, say, a journalist uh, at a magazine, <laughs> assuming magazines still exist, which is maybe too much of an assumption, um, could spend a lot of his time, um, you know, furious, uh, feeling uh, stressed out, feeling like the world is breaking apart. But somebody he went to middle school or high school with who ended up, uh, you know, selling cars, uh, electric cars, say, um, is actually sort of divorced from that level of emotional um, kind of... Uh, uh, reaction to it, but maybe is also not himself happy either because of bad pollution, because he has relatives addicted to opioids, because he is uh, lonely, because he's, you know, th- he's not having sex the way Americans increasingly are not. Yes, you know, I think we need to innovate with social media and turn them more into a way of making and keeping connections and less as a substitute for face-to-face interaction. Uh, I actually think we'll do that. I'm not sure at what pace. Uh, But that same person will have much better entertainment options than ever before, probably greater chances to travel, uh, much better health care, better systems of education. So there will be many aspects of those same lives that will be much superior to what even some of the wealthy people today enjoy. I wonder if we have a world in which, generally speaking, violence is down, if you think there will be continued um, salience around uh, you know, issues like the caravan, issues like violence among immigrants or violence perpetrated by immigrants, um, or whether there's a way that, you know, the experience of the real world could actually eliminate that from our political discourse. Well, I like to think that because we had Trump early in the cycle, so to speak, that we've gotten something out of our system Mm -hmm. and we will recover rhetorically. I still think politics will be torn and much more partisan than it used to be and less evidence-based. But there is definitely the possibility we evolve to a more workable version of this than what most of the world is seeing. Uh, That's my hope for this country. I think it's a pretty good bet, but I still would predict 10, 20, 25 years out from now, when you hear politics and read about it, it will sound ugly and more disillusioning and more depressing than, say, it would have during the 1980s or 90s. Well, that's a sort of hopeful note to end on, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you so much for uh, joining us uh, and telling us about the future. And um, and uh, I thought this was a great conversation. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate your interest. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Tyler. David, how credible did you find Tyler's predictions? Uh, totally credible. I mean, I, I think that um, it's a probably the best way to think about the long history of American politics to see the middle of the 20th century as a aberration and many of the factors that went into that, the weird half-regional, half-partisan um, divide that meant that there were conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans, um, also the economic boom of those years. I think those all those factors have sort of fallen away and it seems maybe not inevitable but certainly plausible that um, – the politics that prevailed before those factors were present will prevail again. Yeah. I mean, Tyler uh, had 
this sort of um, he came with receipts. He had a lot, <laughs> he, he had he had uh, data and numbers to back up what he was thinking, and uh, you know that's I suppose that's the sort of the essence of credibility, especially for an economist. Um, and uh, as you say, like this is not it's not a far flung prediction. It's a prediction of sort of reversion to the mean, which seems uh, like a pretty credible way to be thinking about history and a credible way to be thinking about our country in particular. So yeah, I mean, I found it totally credible. What's interesting to me about it is that it's also like kind of a Republican dream, yeah. which is to say like, um, we think like, oh, politics is awful, total stalemate. That's got to be bad for both sides. But like the Republican project really is to make government seem incompetent, impotent, um, and to drive Americans away from the hope that government can solve their problems. And if we have a world in which, you know, that all unfolds, that'll be like, you know, a wet dream. Yeah. I mean, it actually is sort of, you know, a Tyler is not a Marxist, but you could, there's a Marx, it's a sort of Marxist prediction seen from another way that essentially what you're looking at over the next 20 years is the continued dominance of capital in all social relations and that, you know, political dysfunction is sort of irrelevant to the possibility that business people, that capitalists will continue to make money. Um, and if you are like enough of a pessimist, if you think, you know, there's no workers revolution coming anytime soon, um, then there's no reason to think that we will, you know, continue to have some kind of highly functioning government so long as people are still able to make a profit here and there. Which does raise a, sort of an alternate version of his prediction, which he was sort of reluctant to get into, which is that we start looking at Google and Facebook as essentially our political arena. We turn away from the, especially the federal government and start to think of social media as the place where politics is conducted, in part because those are institutions that we retain some degree of faith in. Yeah, I mean, and I, I wonder a little bit, um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how the the sort of this Facebook, this latest round of Facebook um uh, what's the word? I don't know. The controversy seems so seems so paltry to describe exactly what Facebook's been up to. How that plays into overall understanding of tech, I've been incredibly surprised how little it's affected Amazon and Google that they continue to maintain huge degrees of trust from the public. And you know, it it it's going to be it's going to be an interesting twenty years. Um, let's talk about likelihood. How likely do you think this prediction is? I think probably you know some version of it is pretty likely. I think I wouldn't. I wouldn't quite go as extreme as um, Tyler does. And I also think that one underappreciated um, possibility in his, you know, a possibility that he doesn't appreciate quite enough is that we just have these wild swings where we have a two or four year reign of unified government by one party followed by a two or four year reign of unified government by the other party. And that's not quite the same sort of stalemate, nothing works, everything's fake news situation that he describes. Um, it's much more like the kind of parliamentary system, that um, the way that you see European countries reacting to many of these same forces. And I think that that may be just as likely as one in which we're in a kind of permanent stalemate and everybody loses faith in um, in politics. What about you? Yeah, I mean, that sounds that sounds right. I, I think that, you know, you kind of can't go wrong continuously betting for inertia and stasis, um, you know, and even in the case of some kind of, you know, black swan event like Donald Trump or even Brexit, like it's remarkable how much. Uh, Trump has sort of, uh, you know, normalized and the, the country has sort of stabilized in the wake of his election. And I think that, you know, you look at trend lines and whatever else and you see 
a lot of reasons to believe that, yeah, that we're going to end up in a place where everything kind of just hits a hits a certain level of gridlock and um, doesn't change in any real way. Um, and I'm not actually sure that's all that different from swings from one party to the other. Right. You know, like you end up in a thing a little, maybe a little bit like the Obama-Trump change where it's like you either enforce regulations or you don't enforce regulations. And you just have eight years of, of you know, heavily enforcing regulations and eight years of just letting them up. And that amounts to, over the course of two decades, basically stasis. Which could be nudged along by legal action, which is another thing we haven't talked about, which is, you know, the sort of liberals are, we talked about this in the episode with Dahlia a little bit, liberals are sort of finally focusing on the courts as yeah. a major avenue of political change. And it may be the case that that, again, in the same way that it's possible that the tech companies become the new real center of our political energies, that um, the courts become, you know, uh, the equivalent because there's just nothing going on in the legislature. Mm -hmm. But I also think, you know, it's interesting to think about the Trump years as so far, they've really accomplished quite little legislatively. And it's an open question whether if you imagine it, you know, 2020 to 2022 um, period in which a Democratic president has supported both houses of Congress, who knows if that will happen. But if you imagine it, whether that those two years will look more like 2008, 2009 um, in which I'm sorry, 2009, 2010, in which um, Democrats had control of everything and did a fair amount, maybe not quite as much as liberals would want, but accomplished a fair amount legislatively. Um, or whether it'll look more like 2017, 2018, where essentially not much happened. There was a big tax cut. And then there was a lot of action on courts and regulatory um, yeah. initiatives. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that we didn't talk about in addition to that was sort of the question of demographic change, which has been the great hope of Democrats for the last 10 years. But, you know, we did mention that we're looking at an aging, the Republicans have an aging electorate and it's going to continue to age and eventually die. Um, and I, I think Tyler has a lot of faith that that the um, the sort of coalitions will shift, that there will, there will be a Republican Party that manages to um, attract minority voters um, and young voters and middle aged voters even maybe can bring back suburban voters. I don't think that's I don't think it's necessary. I wouldn't necessarily bet against that. But I do wonder how much the next eight years uh, is. Uh, or maybe I should preface this by saying, you know, I think Tyler, one thing that Tyler and I talked about before you got here was that, um, you know, the sense that a lot of people who aren't members of the sort of intellectual media, whatever class, aren't really going to be paying close attention to politics, that their lives will continue, uh, they'll tune out because it's so emotionally charged and messed up. And I wonder a little bit how much Trump uh, is an aberration in the sense that he is um, such a flashpoint and such a sort of um, media dominating figure that it's I think it's actually very difficult for people to tune out. Obviously, there are some many people who are not paying close attention to politics in the manner of like resistance people on Twitter. But, you know, we're looking at a guy who really does dominate everything that happens in anything you watch or look at or see. And so it's kind of hard for me to imagine that he isn't um, rendering the Republican Party toxic on a kind of existential level for a long time and that once the sort of demographics shift that there will maybe there'll be a, um, a shifting of coalitions within the Democratic Party maybe there'll be a shifting of coalitions elsewhere but I'm I'm not convinced that there isn't um, that we're not looking toward uh, I shouldn't say this an emerging Democratic majority well it's interesting I mean the trends that you're talking about about political engagement I think predate Trump but I, I just looking at 2018, we've had like record midterm turnout. And I think that while it's surely the case that people like you and me and Tyler also are more consumed by politics than our equivalents 25 years ago were, I think personally, I also think it's the case that 
there are a lot of other people out there who are like that. And while there are some, as you say, some people who are disaffected and disinterested, I think it's also the case that more and more Americans are defining themselves by their politics. Um, you know, there are all of these studies out there, that things like 1992 or 94, whenever the O.J. Simpson trial was, there was no partisan divide between whether people thought O.J. Simpson was guilty or innocent. That's completely unimaginable today. Yeah. And now there are major, major partisan divides over questions like whether Moonlight deserves to win Best Picture. So people are defining everything in their lives through, through a partisan lens. And it's sort of hard for me to imagine, even in an era of total government dysfunction, that people will stop doing that. It seems to me they'll just be more and more and more agitated about the other side fucking up the country. Yeah, I mean, I will say, um, in Tyler's defense, he doesn't think we're going to have more sort of reality stars or celebrities as president. And I think that his prediction makes a lot more sense if you consider, if you do consider Trump an aberration and figure that the next 20 years of presidents are Millard Fillmore types, sort of quiet machine politicians who manage to get elected because they're generic Republican, generic Democrat. and that. But does that seem plausible to you in a world in which, like, parties just fucking hate each other i mean it, it also doesn't seem that plausible to me because i'm not positive that if oprah steps into the ring that she would beat a millard fillmore equivalent of 2020 whatever whoever that person is that uh or you know i don't know who hulk hogan or whoever somebody i'm trying to think of the, another republican celebrity and that was the best i could come up with uh I think it's actually harder for sort of milquetoast politicians to get the get their foot in the door. Though, I mean, I can see an argument against that, too. So I'm not actually completely sold on that. Right. So how scared are you of this future? I'm actually kind of scared of it. Like, I think that, you know, my political commitments are leftward enough that I think that, you know, we have a kind of opportunity here to enact a much broader social safety net to kind of improve the lives of a lot of Americans in ways that uh, are frankly necessary um and that if if the country really sort of returns to or or develops a kind of um rancorous but ultimately uh unworkable politics uh as you said before it becomes a kind of you know it's a republican dream like it just becomes a another 20 years of uh widening inequality um racial and religious and political strife that maybe people from upper middle class backgrounds or in media and intellectual and politics classes don't feel it materially. And maybe a lot of people don't elsewhere in the country, but that the world is not getting better. And I, that actually kind of worries me. Yeah, I think it's more, to me, it's a little more like depressing than terrifying. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a better But it way is to really it. depressing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks again to Tyler Cowan for sharing his prediction with us today. Um, you can check out his new book, Stubborn Attachments, um, and also his great work on his blog, Marginal Revolution, which I've been reading for, I don't know, however long it's been published. This podcast was produced by Fanny Co. in association with New York Magazine. Our editor-in-chief is Adam Moss, and our editor is David Haskell. Recording services by Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. I'm Max Reed. That was David Wallace-Wells. See you in the future.